1: We're both long-time MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it's Tuesday, we're recording the proper a day later than we normally do because you were out of town over the weekend, just traveling back to town, I think late last night you got in, so here we are on Tuesday, checking in and catching up on all this stuff from the UFC Fight Night event over the weekend, and of course, probably going to spend the bulk of the show looking ahead to UFC 274 this weekend and the two title fights on the card there. Uh, I got to open the show with this, though, because everyone wants to know. Ben, can you comment on that thirst trap that you posted on social media over the weekend?
0: By thirst trap, you just mean a picture of me wearing a tuxedo. I can't help it, Chad, if you find that very attractive. If you find me a beautiful specimen of humanity, frankly, if you find it uncomfortably erotic, that's not my fault, man. That's on you. You need to work through that yourself. You and everybody, basically all of humanity, everybody who saw the picture. All I'm doing is attending a black tie event and trying to meet the standards of the dress code, trying and and succeeding.
1: I mean, it had the vibe of a guy who needed some compliments, a guy who was like, hey, I I need to revel in some adoration. So I'll put this picture of myself on the Internet. And then uh, the women of Twitter will line up to make their various objectifying comments.
0: See, this is one of those times, Chad, where you think you're, you're talking about me, but what you're doing is telling us about you. This is this is your shit, man. This is this is about you right now. This is about how you feel. Look, just just say the words. Just say, Ben, you looked great in a tuxedo. It's okay, man. It's all right. You can you can do that. You are capable of just saying that and moving on. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. Just say, Ben, you really know how to fill out a tuxedo. You look like a like a mix between James Bond and Don Draper a little bit of Jack Donaghy from 30 Rock mixed in, and God damn it, you're the most beautiful man I've ever seen in my life. Just say that. I don't know why that's so hard for
1: you to say. I'm not going to use the phrase filled out the tuxedo. I'm not going to say that. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Your words, not mine. Thank you. All right. You looked pretty good in the tuxedo. All (laughs) right. motherfucker out here fishing for compliments. Let me tell you something. While I was uh, in upstate New York attending this event, though, I went to the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And uh, if you go to the International Boxing Hall of Fame expecting something like along the lines of what you see in in Cooperstown, at the Baseball Hall of Fame, eh, let's just say you don't need to block out the whole day (laughs) if you're going to the... It's a smaller thing. They got some cool shit there, though. Uh, They got the, the ring from Madison Square Garden that Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier fought in. They got the bell, which they even let you ring. And let me tell you, you ring that bell with a little tiny hammer that's next to it. Sounds exactly like you think it's going to sound. It's very satisfying. But I, uh, first of all, there they sell a lot of autographed memorabilia there, including an autographed picture of Dana White for some reason. And they have the pay stubs, like a copy of the pay stubs from the first Ali-Frazier fight. Which had both those guys... Made a guaranteed two and a half mil. Yeah, for that fight, which fucking Francis Ngannou can't even get that now. We're not even adjusting for inflation here. Francis Ngannou, the UFC heavyweight champion, you know, making less than half of that and guaranteed money from what we're told to fight in the UFC, and that was fucking fifty something years ago. What, like damn near sixty years ago. It, it puts some shit in perspective, man. Yeah, I'll just say that.
1: Am I to understand that they put a picture of Dana White in the Boxing Hall of Fame because of all of the success he experienced with Zufa Boxing?
0: It's not in the in necessarily in the Hall of Fame part. It's, it's like for sale. It's in the memory It's in the gift shop.
1: Okay, There's so they were like, picture. "Hey, we thought we were going to be able to use this, but as it turns out, <laughs> maybe you would like to take it home."
0: Also, I think it's kind of bullshit. The One thing that the Boxing Hall of Fame and the Baseball Hall of Fame do have in common, you know, you hear a lot about Pete Rose being kept out of the Baseball Hall of Fame because yeah. of his, his gambling sins. And yet you go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, there's pictures of Pete Rose there. It, he's not technically in. He doesn't have like the bust and everything like uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame. But it's not like we're forgetting that the guy existed. Here's a big-ass picture of Pete Rose in the Baseball Hall of Fame when I went there. Primo Carnera who we talked about before as being the much maligned boxing heavyweight champion accused of participating in a lot of fixed fights. He's not in the Boxing Hall of Fame. Some guys Primo Carnera beat are in the Boxing Hall of Fame. uh, And there are a lot of molds of people's fists. And it'll just be like, here's Marvin Hagler's fist. Here's what, uh, you know, one of the Klitschko's fists looks like, like shit like that. Primo Carnero's fist, they make a big deal about it because it is enormous. And it's like, oh, okay. So we we still want to have some fun with the guy. We're just not going to let him in here. Other than as a goddamn freak show, look at how big his fist was. Seems to me like it's kind of bullshit.
1: So his fist is in the Hall of Fame, but but not the rest of him.
0: A mold of his fist. Uh, Also, don't think I didn't just grin from ear to ear whenever I saw any James Tony shit. I was just over there. I was the only person in there being like... Side check kick, am I right, guys? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Where, you guys don't know what I'm talking about.
1: Where's Where's my pictures of Randy Couture posing by the James Tony bust in the Boxing Hall of Fame? That's what I want. That's what I, I want. just
0: I just posted up next to James Tony's robe in the Boxing Hall of Fame. Waited for somebody to wander close enough for me to be like, "You want to hear a story about this guy?" <laughs> tell you one thing: can't defend the low single. Yeah,
1: not in his uh, not in his skill set. Uh, remember, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. Don't forget to go out and follow us on Instagram at CME. If you nasty like us on Facebook at Facebook dot com slash co-main event, this show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. Episode 500 going to drop next week. Probably going to have some special stuff planned for that. That's a lie. We won't have anything special planned for that. And if you think we're having fun right now, you got to check us out over on Patreon, patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben folks and I are over there party rocking all week. With three additional podcasts, you can check out the Wednesday live te- live chat, hashtag wild on Wednesdays. We got the Thursday podcast, Doing the Damn Thing, and the Friday Power Hour podcast. If you don't get your fix from us right now, today, check us out over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. There is a lot of very cool stuff happening over at the Patreon. We got music this week from our guys, Foreign Cash. That's C-A-C-H-E. An LA based production duo. If you like what you hear on the show from Foreign Cash, check out more of their stuff over at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or SoundCloud.com slash Foreign Cash. Again, that's C A C H E in the word cash. Three rounds, as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Chucky Olives versus Justin Gaethje is the lightweight title multiplication test where every possible answer is violence. And we fully expect them to choose all of the above. And in round number two, Carla Asparza could reportedly set a record for the longest time between UFC title reigns if she unseats Rose Namajunas on Saturday. Any of y'all think that's going to happen? And in round number three, will Tony Ferguson barrel roll his way back into our hearts this weekend, or will he simply tiptoe across a series of ever more precarious obstacles with a 45-pound weightlifting bar on his back straight into our greatest fears? Only one way to find out all that. Plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail.
0: Listener mail.
1: This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by Fulton and Rourke. We love it. We love Fulton and Rourke. We love their award-winning men's grooming products, and we don't care who knows. Fulton and Rourke have won awards from GQ and Men's Health, and they've been featured in outlets like the Wall Street Journal and Good Housekeeping and Outside Magazine. It's the good shit. Ben, what's your favorite Fulton and Rourke product?
0: You know, it's tough, but I got to say body wash. Yeah. I love the body wash, man. Especially, you know, having been on the road just a few days here, a lot of places where they, uh, for one reason or another, they only seem to have bar soap. And I'm like, man, get me home to my Fulton and Work body wash.
1: There you go. There you go. I actually think my favorite at the moment is the moisturizing oil. You can put a couple drops of it in your hair for some light hairstyling. You can use it on your hands as a deep moisturizer. And you know, man, this pandemic... Has been hell on the skin in my delicate artist's hands. Yeah. It's great. And just like everything else from Fulton and Rourke, it smells amazing. Tons of cool stuff going on at Fulton and Rourke. If you want to check it out for yourself, CME listeners can save 15% on their first purchase with a coupon code IF YOU NASTY. That's all one word. IF YOU NASTY over at FultonandRourke.com. Uh, ben, we got a lot of email this week about Rob Font versus Chito Vera, and a lot of emails about the scoring of that fight. I'm going to read these two together because they uh, kind of go together, really. The first email here is from Jart Harley Barvis.
0: I get it. Who has, and I think you should leave reference.
1: Yeah, he writes, "Please assist. I'm having trouble processing what I witnessed on Saturday. I don't know if I've ever seen a fight quite like the Vera versus Font main event, i.e., a fight where one fighter, Rob Font, wins about 4 minutes and 15 seconds in each of the 5 rounds and yet we all collectively <laughs> agree that he lost the fight. But I haven't really seen anyone talk about it, so I'm wondering, am I crazy feeling like this is a situation where we that we haven't seen before? Is this a unique phenomenon and could a fight like this perhaps be an argument for the judges issuing 10-10 rounds?" Please help me sort this thing out. Discourse, please. And thank you. Then we got this one from my guy, Shad Rapp, who emails the, the show a lot. He writes, I just finished watching the main event of the UFC fight night Vera versus font. I think the right guy won, but how did we get there on these scorecards? Maybe it's just me, but based on strike count, I was expecting font to get the nod, but my heart said Vera, though. I'm not sure how many font strikes and Vera knockdowns is worth. Uh, can you guys explain to me how the UFC scoring and judging works? Like I'm a six year old now, Ben, this was kind of a unique and interesting fight to watch because it did sure look like, uh, for the most part, and especially during the early rounds of the fight, like Rob font was kind of beating the shit out of Marlon Vera for a lot of it. And then, uh, after the first round, I think Marlon Vera might've knocked him down in every round after that, or at least hurt him in, in two or three of those rounds. And of course, by the end of it, holy hell, Rob Fawn is out there looking like something out of a horror movie, looking like Frankenstein's monster out here. And ultimately I feel like we did get around to the, to the best judge's decision. I felt like Marlon Vera deserved to win the fight. Uh, Once you take all of it put together, but at the same time, I do admit it occasionally rubs me the wrong way in MMA that we have come around to this scoring system where one guy can win almost the entire round. And then in the last 30 seconds or whatever, he gets stunned. He gets knocked down. He doesn't get finished. But then all of a sudden we about face and we say, oh, this other person who spent almost all the time getting their face punched he actually wins the round because i feel like it's a weird thing to do to to wait to put that much weight behind the guy who is the more durable and has the the you know the slight edge in power
0: yeah as far as the question of have we ever seen this before i don't know if we've ever seen it exactly like this before because it was weird how it just seemed to keep happening according right. to the the same rhythm after the first round right how it, it was like it got frustrating by the end, by the fifth round, when Marlon Vera hurts him in the final minute again, and you go, It seems like you could do this sooner if you wanted to. Why? What, what is happening to you that your punches seem to get more powerful in the final 60 seconds of each round? And I was thinking about other examples that we have seen, and the closest one I could remember, at least, was the second. Michael Bisping, Dan Henderson fight. When Michael Bisping was the champion and he defended it against Dan Henderson, and it wasn't quite the same as far as this same shit is happening in every round, but it was a situation where you are mostly watching Michael Bisping, picking him apart, staying away from him, landing blows, not really doing a ton of damage, and then Dan Henderson would land one big punch and Bisping would be hurt and it would seem like maybe there's a chance for a finish. And it was hard. You know, Bisping ended up winning the decision on that, but it's hard for people then to know exactly what to make of that. How much is that worth, especially in the bounds of the 10-9 scoring system? So I, I do think it presents some problems, like you said, because even if we all understand, hey, we're prioritizing damage. That you are actually doing meaningful damage in this fight, not just reaching out and touching the guy with the end of your fist. That it's not just, you know, we're not doing point karate here. So we are setting that as our first priority. And then when that seems equal, we move down to to considering some of the other things. And, you know, till we eventually work our way down to octagon control. But I, I also think that that is sometimes tricky to determine because there were some times here where... I wondered, man, Marlon Vera is not even showing any of this any real signs that he's been punched in the face, but I just saw that punch land super hard. And meanwhile, Rob Font gets hit with one left hook and immediately his head starts to swell up. And we've seen guys before in the past where like George St. Pierre is a good example, where it just seems like he wore every bit of damage that he absorbed. You could see it on his face pretty quickly afterwards, especially once the fight was over. But it didn't necessarily mean he was getting hit or getting hurt more because of it. Or we've seen times where a guy is mostly winning. I remember that fight between Tim Kennedy and Robbie Lawler, where Tim Kennedy is mostly winning it and Robbie Lawler opened up a a cut there toward the end. And you're wondering, okay, are the judges just going to see blood and think the other guy must be winning? It's tricky sometimes to ask people to sort of eyeball their way into an assessment of damage because... This one, I think, was a little more clear. I, I do think the right guy won and all that, but it's not always that clear. And so sometimes, when you're trying to look at it and be like, "I think this guy did more damage," you could just be talking yourself into that. And there's not necessarily a good reason, other than cosmetic ones, to to make that determination.
1: Yeah, and I, rem- you know, it's we've seen rounds like this before. I think it's, it happens. Not all the time, but also not infrequently that we see somebody come in and steal the round with like a hard shot and knockdown in the last minute or whatever it is. But I don't recall a fight where we saw the same thing over and over again yeah. in all of these different rounds. Uh, and we, we clearly don't want to get into a situation where we're just counting up total numbers of strikes and that's the person who wins. Because then you do have like, as you said, a point karate slash kind of like Olympic boxing style of, of scoring, which I think we all agree is, is not the way to go. And yet so much of the rest of this feels so subjective. And like you said, it, a lot of it comes down to Cheeto Vera being able to play off these shots better than than Rob Font. And and that seems very subjective to me, like very uh, kind of in the eye of the beholder, how much you want to put stock into one guy getting socked in the face super hard and just eating it. And the other guy getting socked in the face super hard and momentarily getting stunned, but is able to recover and come back just as strong in the next round. Uh, some of this stuff also seems to, like, put the lie to the idea that we're scoring these rounds individually in a vacuum like the rest of the fight's not happening, right? Because, uh, you know, Rob Font wins probably, like, the first nine minutes of this thing. Pretty handy. Yeah. And then he gets dropped, I want to say, in the last, like, 20 seconds of round two, something like that, maybe the last minute. Uh, and if you want to give Chito Vera that round, I like, I guess, but like, I'm almost inclined to say Rob Font won these first two rounds, but then when it starts happening over and over again, and Rob Font is wearing the damage on his face and it's just kind of, it's, it becomes more of a pattern than a freak occurrence. Then I think you start giving the rounds to Chito Vera, but in doing that, you're also considering the overall fight, which at least technically... You're not supposed to do if you're right. judging these things according to the strict letter of the law. So I do. I agree. I think Chito Vera won it. But how we got around to that, I think, cuts some corners in how we're supposed to be scoring this thing. I would also ask you, and I don't know that I know the answer to this question. I guess uh, I would say tentatively, yes. But like, did you come out of this thing being like, okay, Marlon Vera is the better fighter, in these in this fight between these two guys.
0: Yes. Yes, because for one thing, if you just go by Stockton rules, then he really won that fight because look at the two of them afterwards and who would have won if the fight had continued. Uh it the if he had just done that in one or two rounds, just got outpointed for most of it and then landed one big shot that hurt Rob Font, I would have been like, "Okay, maybe he he just he landed a good one and if if we did this five more rounds the the scales would even out a little bit and rob font would take over but the fact that he was able to do that in almost every round and the fact that he was so unbothered by the the shots rob font landed that makes me think yeah he is the better fighter that he might not land more strikes if they fight but if they continued that fight, I think he was close to putting Rob Font away. If he had really even just pressed a little harder in the fifth round rather than showing off a little bit, uh, he might have put him away. But I, I especially if the other guy can hit you 10 times to every three that you land, but the 10 times don't bother you and the three damn near knock him the fuck out, then that's significant that you don't need to land the extra seven to even those striking stats because you're doing so well just with the three. And I think that that does make you the better fighter.
1: We got this question from a respectful Charizard. Hmm. I don't Hmm. know what that is. I might have to go to the internet. He writes UFC. The UFC card had some damn bangers this past weekend highlighted by Chito Vera's dominant win. Uh, Do we want to go ahead and throw him in there with Peter Yan, or dare I say Cejudo, if the UFC feels like Henry needs to prove himself? Would watch all of it. now. Marlon Vera has floated the idea of a rematch between himself and Jose Aldo. Of course, Jose Aldo is out here writing open letters to Aljamain Sterling about why he should get the next title defense. Uh, Marlon Vera and Jose Aldo just fought in December of 2020. That was a unanimous decision win for Aldo. Since then, Marlon Vera has won three straight fights over Davy Grant, Frankie Edgar, and then Saturday night over Rob Font. He is, is now ranked officially Number five in the men's 135-pound division, he has flown up three spots from number eight after this win over Rob Font. Rob Font dropped two spots to number seven. The only people in front of Vera in the bantamweight rankings, of course, the champion, Aljamain Sterling, then you got Peter Yawn, TJ Dillashaw, Jose Aldo, and Corey Sandhagen. Those are the only people who are ranked higher than Cheeto Vera at this moment. What do you want to see happen with this guy moving forward?
0: Well, first of all, it's good to get this question from what I can only assume is some kind of anime dragon. So, that's good. Good to hear from that anime dragon. (laughs) Um, Okay, the the peculiar nature of this win. One of the downsides to doing it this way is that a lot of people are probably going to come out of it and be like, That was awesome. I had a lot of fun watching that fight. Uh, That dude is a a badass man, but he's too easy to hit and would get absolutely worked by somebody a little higher up the food chain here. So I don't know if you come out of that one and people immediately go, yeah, throw him in a title fight. I I think you still got some work to do. Because it's one thing, you know, hey, if you can do that against Rob Vaughn, Rob Vaughn's a tough guy, clearly a good fighter, so you know, we're going to give you the, the the points for that one. But they're also going to s- kind of look at you and go, okay, prove you could do that to somebody a little higher up, though, because I'm not sure I'm ready to believe it until I see it.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, a Peter Yawn fight against Marlon Vera, frankly, would be fun as hell, uh, but I don't know if that's what they're going to end up doing next somebody is going to get a little bit left out in the cold here, depending on what you decide to do with all Jermaine Sterling. It sounds like Aldo and Dillashaw might be the two front runners there to scoop up the immediate title shot. I guess that leaves Peter Jan and Corey Sanhagen kind of floating around uh, with nothing to do. So either one of those guys, I think really Sanhagen or Jan would shape up as a really, really good test for Chito Vera. It just depends on, who ends up getting the title shot and who is kind of hanging around left out in the cold looking for something to do. But I agree with you. This is this is like a dangerous game that Cheeto Vera plays and he's not necessarily doing it on purpose, obviously. But if the thing that wins you these fights is just the knockdowns, man, what happens when you don't get those? Yeah. Do you just take the L? Is that is that is that all there is to it? Or or do we got more in the uh more in the skill set here, more in the toolbox. So I don't know. I think he's an interesting guy. I think it's fun to have him now in the top five at 135 pounds among this group of guys. Uh, And I'm interested to see what matchmakers can do with this because they got a little bit of a puzzle there at 135 right now.
0: Yeah, but I mean, hey, if your big problem is that you've got too many potential fights that would be awesome, would watch kind of material, that's not too big a problem.
1: Yeah. We got this question from King Shake Pack. He okay. writes, did the UFC get it wrong with the reported Tom Aspinall versus Curtis Blades as the UFC London headliner on July 23rd and the Cyril gone versus Tai Tuivasa September 7th UFC Paris headliner? Seems like it would have made more sense to do gone versus Blades and Tuivasa versus Aspinall because the matchups as is, I could easily see the outcomes of both fights. Please discuss uh, you know what we found out here? Not that we f- just found this out, but it was confirmed for us by these fight bookings. The UFC hates fun. <laughs> you got you got your boy Ty Tuivasa out here being the feel-good story, being the man endowed with the heavyweight prophecy that he will be the champion at the end of 2022 based on an extremely long shot bet that the co man events podcast uh, encouraged our listeners to check out. And now the UFC is going to be out here booking him against Cyril Gaon in Paris as if to say, all right, everyone has had their laugh. Now we're going to let Cyril Gaon outpoint this guy en route to a 25-minute decision. Like this is, this is, is, this is the opposite of whatever fun matchmaking is.
0: Yeah, I can see the argument here. I mean, I guess, especially if you're Curtis Blades, imagine how he jumped up and volunteered to fight Cyril Gond, especially after he saw Francis and out wrestle him, and he was like, "I tell you, who knows a thing or two about wrestling? It's yours truly. I will go in there. If if Francis and could take this guy down and keep him there, I will absolutely maul him. Gimme, gimme." That one is mine, you know? And then the UFC says, "Mm, thank you for your input. We've decided instead you should face this big young guy uh, with a little bit more well-rounded skill set who we're excited about. Mm, And where, you know, he's not coming off of being the interim heavyweight champion. And so a win over him maybe would not be as, as good for your resume. Will you go do that? And then we got something else. For the other guy. I could see how if you are thinking like. Hey maybe we want Gon and Tui Vasa. Because. Then there's. We think there's less chance of Cyril Gon getting taken down and held there. And not having fun in that way. We say this way. You know it's Cyril Gon against another guy. Who wants to stand there and try to take your head off. And let's see if Cyril Gon can keep touching him. And keep moving and and not get. Uh, sent to the land of wind and ghosts. And meanwhile. Well, you know, Curtis Blades, you're just going to have to fight every other tough up and comer we can think of because we don't know what else the hell to do with you.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm going to squeeze this one in here from the Corgi King who wrote first props to Andre Arlovsky for continuing to do the damn thing at 43. But how much longer do you think he will keep fighting and why? I know he's still winning fights. uh but fighters to still take damage, even in victories. He's not really even close to a title shot and his legacy in the sport is pretty well cemented. Of course, Arlovski Arlovsky got the split decision win over Jake Collier in the co-main event on Saturday. Uh, well, how about people,
0: that? Arlovsky via decision. Just like I said, cool. Cool. You, done? you, go, go, you go ahead. Go ahead. You
1: cause I, cause I hit my parlay because of that too. <laughs> just so, just so you know, while you're over there, uh, Soaking up the adoration like we know you like to do, like we just found out over the weekend. Uh, Andre Arlovsky is one of these dudes going to do it until he till he dies. He's going to be yes, out here 60 absolutely. years old at a carnival somewhere with his trunks pulled up over his belly button, uh, taking on all comers for for a dollar a round or something like that. And I guess once you make peace with that, it's his choice, man. If this is what Andre Arlovsky wants to do with his whole life. Uh, I'm I'm kind of not going to stand in his way. Sometimes, you know, with a lot of other guys, we've seen it get hard to watch. Arlovsky has obviously had ups and downs in his own career, long stretches of of losses, and then periods where he has put it back together. Uh, I know he is out here talking about how his ultimate goal is still to become the champion again, which seemed far seems far-fetched, although, as we often say in the heavyweight division, it doesn't take as much or as long a run of victories to get yourself back into title contention. But I don't know, man. Andre Arlovsky seems like one of these guys... He's like, this is his life. This is what he is doing with his life. He is dedicating his entire person, his entire being, his entire story to doing this, and uh, he obviously will suffer the consequences physically, whatever that is, down the road. But at the same time, like, it's his choice, and uh, and if he if this is if this is all he wants out of life, who's gonna who's gonna stand in his way? Who's gonna tell him no?
0: Yeah, it's also tricky because he is still kind of doing something remarkable. Yeah. Because like we thought Andrei Olofsky was done like a decade ago. You know, it looked like Andrei Olofsky had risen as far as he'd ever rise, was suffering from some bad knockouts, looked like he was just fucking done like dinner, man. And then he became basically a different fighter. He evolved with the... I don't want to say evolved with the sport so much, although I think that is somewhat true, but also... Evolved with the changing needs of his body and abilities, which is super rare, honestly. Think about all the fighters. I would list even Fedor Emelianenko, the great Fedor, among those who failed to do that. Where he was out there still fighting like he was the same guy that he was in 2005. And it just wasn't working for him anymore when he was 40 years old. And Andrei he he's changed his approach over the years and tweaked it. And gotten, a, gotten to be a, a much smarter fighter, even if it's not always the most fun to watch the way it used to be. But he's found a way to stay successful and stay in this. And, you know, he takes some damage because you're in there with heavyweights, trading leather, but not a ton. And still managing to get some wins. And it does seem like he's going to, continue doing it as long as he's enjoying it. Yeah. And he clearly is still enjoying it now. It's not at all hard for me to imagine Andre Arlovsky at 50, still fighting in a cage somewhere, yeah. somewhere on planet earth.
1: He's seven and two in his last nine right now. And look out, Andre Arlovsky has won four fights in a row in the UFC heavyweight division. The last two, albeit by split decision. But uh, the only losses over that stretch are to the biggie boy, Jarzino Rosenstrike, and Tom Aspinall, who we were just talking about. So like, I don't know. I just basically gave you my pitch on why, uh, if this is what Andre Arlovsky wants to dedicate his life to, like we kind of have to let him do it. And at the same time, he's more than competitive, man. He's out here winning these fights. So uh, yeah. I'm not I'm not totally on a panic button stage with Andrei Arlovsky right now, despite how long he's been doing it and some of the ups and downs we've seen from him. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us right now we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one Well then, odds makers see this title fight between Charles Oliveira and Justin Gaethje as pretty even. As of this recording, Oliveira is going off as a slight favorite at minus 165, and Gaethje Is just a slight underdog at plus 145. One thing we know for sure is if you're going to place a wager on the fights, you should do it at the DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC. Right now, new customers can bet $5 on any fighter to win and get $150 in free bets if they do. Ben, why don't you tell the kids at home how it
0: works? Well, Chad, you just choose your fighter, then sit back, watch the action unfold. The lightweight title fight may be close to a pick 'em, but with DraftKings Sportsbook, you've got at least one sure thing for UFC 274: bet $5 and get $150 in free bets if your fighter wins. Just download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code COMAINEVENT. All one word. Throw down $5 on any UFC 274 fighter to win and get $150 in free bets if they do. That's code Event this Saturday at DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply.
1: Yeah, go look at the show notes listed on this episode for details. Is this a you do you fight? For both these guys, Charles Oliveira and Justin Gaethje, because we spend a lot of time on this show and MMA media types in general spend a lot of time talking strategy, breaking stuff down. It seems to me like neither one of these guys should be planning a surprise in this fight. Like Justin Gaethje should go out there and be Justin Gaethje, try to keep this thing on the feet, hurt Charles Oliveira with the low kicks. And we have seen Charles Oliveira be susceptible even recently to the striking game. It just so happens that he has uh, recovered from those instances and come back to win the fight. So I think Justin, if you're, if you're Justin Gaethje, You got to feel sort of confident in your skills heading into this. You got to feel sort of confident that you have the recipe to potentially hurt this guy. And again, if you're Charles Oliveira, on the other side of the coin, you do you, man. Get in there, weather the storm, try to take this guy down, and do what you do on the mat as the submission wizard. Get the tap out here. Am I wrong to say that? Do you think there's any surprises in store here?
0: I mean, it's interesting that you say weather the storm, because that is something that we've come to think of as part of what it looks like for Charles Oliveira to do him right because we've seen him get hurt early on look like he's he's taking some hard shots early on and then find a way to win I don't know if you if you can really count on that for too long against some of these dudes at lightweight and if I'm Justin Gaethje that's definitely one of the things I'm thinking about is get after this guy early that maybe he's a little bit of a slow starter that he's susceptible early on let's go out there in the first round and put it on him and press him hard uh, because it does seem like once he gets a chance to settle into the fight, he's much more dangerous. Michael Chandler found that out. Dustin Poirier found that out. So if I'm Justin Gaethje, I don't want to give him that chance. But also if I'm Charles Oliveira, if you want to stay champion for too long, you've got to fix that. That cannot just be a feature of your game that goes on indefinitely. Sp- like, Just think about who you're going to have to end up fighting as the UFC lightweight champion. You just, you will not be able to stay there for too long if you make a habit of letting people get to you early.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, and it's been night and day for Charles Oliveira. We've all seen the stats, I believe, through his first, what was it, 18 UFC fights? He was like 10 and eight or something like that. His last 10, all wins, 10 and 0. Since then, his last loss was Paul Felder back in December of 2017 at UFC 218. Uh, it was kind of his... Uh, I guess, uh, Achilles heel, you could say, in some of these other fights is that when people did put him in trouble and take him into deep water and he got hurt and things got, tire- uh, got got rocky in the fight, he got tired, et cetera, he would kind of fold and he would lose these fights. And it has been the stated objective for a lot of these most recent opponents of Charles Oliver to be like, I'm gonna do that to him again. I'm gonna remind him who he used to be. I'm gonna break this guy and I'm gonna impose my will on him. Now, obviously we haven't seen that happen in any of these recent Charles Oliveira fights. And he has been out there fighting a bunch of dudes who in theory should be able to do that, not the least of which Dustin Poirier, Michael Chandler, Tony Ferguson, and Kevin Lee, all in succession in his most recent fights. Uh, But if you are Justin Gaethje, do you like your chances better than you like those other guys? Because, you know, uh, short of Dustin Poirier, uh, you might be the best in the business at going out there uh, imposing your will, hurting people on the feet with your power punches, with your leg kicks, and just kind of being relentless coming
0: forward. If, if you're Justin Gaethje,
1: I don't know, man, even though you're the underdog, I feel like you kind of be confident in what you do here.
0: Yeah, I would think matchup-wise, of all the potential fights you could end up facing somebody for, uh, for a UFC lightweight title, Justin Gaethje ought to like this one better than a whole lot of those other ones. Just because of... His strengths, uh, especially early in a fight, and how they match up with Olivera's. Uh, but then again, I don't like you can't go into a fight like this, this thing, and like, okay, this guy's tailor made for me. I'm gonna take him out because he's already got here to this point by winning some fights people thought he was gonna lose, and by winning some fights that it looked like he was gonna lose. And while I think he Olivera cannot just bank on that indefinitely. You gotta respect that that he is doing that against some good guys, and that there's got to be a reason. You know, you 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 have got to be aware of that guy at all times. That uh, a couple people thought they had him in trouble and thought they were gonna get rid of him and weren't able to, and then he comes back and he finds a way to beat you. Like he is still a super dangerous guy, especially if he can keep you at the range he wants, uh, and then get you pressing in to try to get out of that range, and the next thing you know, he's on your goddamn back. He's got a few different ways to win this fight, whereas Justin Gaethje has kind of one main way, and it's to go in there throwing hammers at your head.
1: Yeah, Justin Gaethje rolls into this thing having lost to Habib Nurmagomedov at UFC. Uh, 254 in October of 2020. Other than that, though, he is has won five straight. He's five and one in his last six. He defeated Michael Chandler at UFC 268, also wins over Tony Ferguson, Donald Cerrone, Edson Barboza, and James Vick in that stretch. Uh, I, I guess one thing that I think about Justin Gaethje is that it's hard for me to shake the memories of that Habib Nurmagomedov fight where he wasn't actually doing too bad, but then, as soon as the fight hit the ground, it was all but over, for Justin Gaethje. Habib ends up winning second round technical submission. I think this is trouble for him if 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 he winds up on the mat with someone as capable, and uh, you know, such a deadly finisher as Charles Oliveira.
0: Yeah, but Oliveira does not have Habib's wrestling. And that's the big. I mean, Habib showed a great transition to the submission there, so I don't want to take that away from him. But it was the wrestling that got him there. And you know, Justin Gaethje comes from a college wrestling background, so he's got some good wrestling. The Oliveira's ground game is just built differently, and it's built more on you know he'll he'll enter the takedown sometimes up against the fence to try to just get you into those sorts of exchanges, and then he feels like. Jiu-jitsu-wise, he's going to pull ahead of you, not just put you somewhere against your will that you don't want to be and that you can see while it's happening, which is what Khabib was doing, where he was just stacking up so many different attacks on guys that they'd get lost. And Oliveras isn't quite like that. It is in In a way, it's tricky in the opposite direction because it feels, it seems like guys don't think they're in major trouble until suddenly they are. And then you're not, you're not defending quickly enough. And then the next thing you know, he's got his arm wrapped around your neck. I think that at this point, if you're Justin Gaethje, if you don't have that pretty well scouted, you ought to, like you, you know what he has there and your whole game is going to be just, I don't want to play that with him at all. Like that your wrestling should be put to use to just keep you out of those kinds of exchanges. And I that's where I really like Justin Gates' chances in this matchup more than others because I think he ought to be able to do that. It's my question is, does he get too caught up trying to go after Oliveira and put him away that you know one of those sneaky Oliveira left hooks, like the one that f- found Michael Chandler at the end of an exchange, just gets through and then the next thing you know you're hurt. Yeah, like that's I think what he's got to watch out for.
1: Well, it's a long fight, man. Uh, Theoretically, we got 25 minutes to work here. It's hard for me to imagine that this whole thing goes down on the feet or, you know, not in a clinching situation where Charles Oliveira could be dangerous with his with his submissions and other stuff. But I guess on the on the uh, Justin Gaethje side of things, it's going to I feel weird saying this about Justin Gaethje, but we have seen a slightly more patient slightly less pressing Justin Gaethje in some of his most recent appearances. It seems like, you know, with the maturity that comes along with all of his experiences, he has has maybe not realized, but gotten comfortable with the fact that he can still be very, very dangerous on the feet while putting together a sort of a composed uh, showing. So he may not go out there and, and rush into too much stuff. And I agree with you that he should have a lot of Charles Oliveira's attacks scouted. It's just that with Charles Oliveira having them scouted and stopping him from doing shit to you can occasionally be two different things. Well, I guess one question I have for you is like who do you think this benefits if this thing goes long? If we get into the 3rd, 4th, 5th round, if we're into those championship minutes, which guy uh which guy does this benefit? Because you got two guys here who who uh kind of have that you know uh, w- w- Grinding bulldog mentality at times.
0: I think the longer it goes, the more it's in Olivera's favor. I, I think that Justin Gaethje, the thing that he does, he does very well. But to keep, if you have to keep that up for five rounds, I think that for one thing, it means you're not really hurting the guy as much as he bases his whole attack on. You know, Justin Gaethje is like his whole thing is hey, let's stand here and punch each other in the face, and I will bet that I could take it more than you can. And if you make it to round four and five there, then it something has gone wrong with that strategy at some point. Whereas Charles Oliveira, I think the scariest moments of the fight for him are first round early in the second round, and then he usually seems to settle in there. So, like... It's hard for, you know, for one thing, I don't see this one going to a decision. I think that somebody probably gets finished in this one. But if it does go to a decision, I think that it does not favor Justin Gaethje just because of the way he tends to approach these.
1: All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week?
0: Well, you know, we talked about this fun uh, UFC fight night main event fight between Rob Font and Marlon Vera. I was on the road. I was traveling, had a... At a black tie gala to attend on Saturday evening. You might have, have heard me mention it or seen how good I looked in a tuxedo at this event. So I didn't get to watch the fights live. I circled back afterwards to watch them. I think, this should be no problem. I got an ESPN Plus subscription. I'll just queue it up on there. They break the fights out for you and everything and watch them individually. Uh, the thing I forgot, though, and see, this part is on me, is that ESPN Plus uh, doesn't... Uh, what's the word I want here? Work. It doesn't fucking work, Chad. The shit just doesn't work, man. I, you know what happens when I go onto ESPN Plus, find the fight I want, click play on that bad boy? Error page. Over and over and over again. Just error. Like, it can do all the other things. It can show me all the things it has to watch. Just when I want to watch them, that's when it cannot do that. You know how I end up watching this fight? MMA core. The homies. The straight-up fucking homies who always got your back on MMA Core. No matter what shit you want to see that you did not pay for, they got you over there on MMA Core. ESPN Plus, to whom I pay a monthly subscription fee, just doesn't fucking work. Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me with this shit, ESPN Plus? You know how great a service this would be if it actually just did the thing? If it did the thing that you pay him for? It'd be wonderful. I would love it. I'd be willing to pay them several American dollars every month for that service. In fact, I do. It's just that they don't then do the thing they're supposed to do. Are you fucking kidding me? Why I'm doesn't the shit work, me. Chad? All I just all I want the shit to do is work. Uh I'm sure the
1: homies at MMAcore.tv are going to appreciate the shout out that they they, they I got I believe it's as soon MMAcore.com. as they wake up com in com, Moscow. But... What time is it in Moscow right now? As soon as those guys <laughs> wake up, they're really going to enjoy that shout out that you gave them.
0: They earned it. Yeah. I'll say that for them.
1: Uh, Ben, Dana White went on something called The Pivot this week. Okay. It's a podcast or something. I don't know. Uh, But as we know by now, Dana White's fucking specialty is to go on these mainstream sports podcasts or radio or TV shows where they know enough to know that they should be talking about the UFC. But they don't know or care enough to know when he's lying. So they just sit there and they nod their heads and they say, right, and "Uh uh-huh, and they just go along with whatever he says. Well, he spouts this nonsense, man. He spouts this utter, absolute nonsense about fighter pay. I've got the quote right here. Some of you might've seen it on the internet. Here's his quote from UFC president Dana White. One of the big problems with boxing too is that all those fucking guys are overpaid. Every time they put on a fight, it's a going out of business sale. They're just like, we're just trying to get as much fucking money as we can from you guys, and then we're out of here. We'll see you guys in three years. You can't build a league like that. You can't can't build a sport. You can't have 750 fighters under contract, making money, feeding their families every year with that kind of mentality. It doesn't work. You have to run a business. Are you fucking kidding me? Dana White is just going to go out here and ignore literally every other professional sport. Like they don't exist. Man, the UFC made a billion dollars in revenue last year with what we believe are 55% profit margins. And all the news out recently has all all of it has been about how those numbers and that money is only going to go through the fucking roof in the next couple of years. Are you fucking kidding me? This, it's the year of our Lord 2022. And this guy is still gonna sit there on these podcasts and be like, can't do that. Doesn't work financially. Can't pay these guys that much money. You fucking kidding me? Like I feel like every time we turn around there's a fucking big boxing event every month, week after yeah. week after week, boxing is back. They're doing all this shit. Nope. It's a cash grab, man. Once every three years these guys are gonna show up. Are you fucking kidding me? We're watching it.
0: God it's, it's going fairly well, honestly. Uh and you know one of the ways I can tell that it's going fairly well is that there aren't a bunch of boxers trying to get into MMA. However, there are a bunch of MMA fighters. Trying to get into boxing. Seems like they're doing okay over there. You fucking
1: kidding me, man. Fucking kidding me. That's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
0: Well, Chad, I know that this is a big one for you because you're, you're a big cookie monster guy. You have been sitting over there for years talking about how you cannot wait for Carla Esparza to once again regain her rightful throne as UFC champion. Now, here she is. She had to put five fucking wins together right in a row before we'd even look at her. Then the UFC did look at her and went, mm, "Is there anybody else, anybody at all, who we could choose, who who we could slide into this title fight against Rose Nama Yunus ahead of this?" But then you know, at a certain point, even Rose Namajunas is like, "Hey, you know, she did beat me back during the Ultimate Fighter finale to uh, the the inaugural UFC Women's Strawweight title." <laughs> I kind of like that one back. She seems like she earns it, has, has earned it with this winning streak. Give me Carla Esparza. And now we're back in business. Do you see Carla Esparza regaining a UFC title here? And what's your hype level for a fight of this sort?
1: That sounds like a loaded question, my friend. It's uh, a yes or
0: no question. First of first one.
1: I mean, I guess you got to go. No, it's hard to bet against Rose Namajunas at this point. Although, you know, you you, you gave a lot of credit where credit was due there in your introduction. I think in some ways you got to hand it to Rose Namajunas for this fight even happening because like you said, this wasn't necessarily the opponent that the UFC wanted. And Rose, who is a fairly unique figure in the landscape of this sport, was kind of like, no, I'm doing Carla because in some cases, deserve does have something to do with it. And she does deserve it. So I think it's like kind of a feel good fight to have, to have Carla Esparza come in here and get this title defense or title shot that she has earned and that she does deserve. Uh, It's hard to see her beating Rose Namajunas, but you know, maybe if she can come out and work that wrestling game that got her the title in the first place and steer, steer clear of the submission attempts, she could have a shot. Uh, It's just real hard man to look at the landscape in this division and say that Carla Esparza is going to be the one to beat Rose Namajunas. Like if she did, what an amazing story. Can you believe that Carla Esparza would shatter the record for how long it has been between UFC title reigns. I believe the guy who's got it now is Frank Mir. And we all remember what happened with Frank Mir uh, getting in the motorcycle accident and coming back to once again be UFC heavyweight champion. It's been even longer for Carla Esparza, who won the title in her fight against Rose uh Way back in, what was it, like 2014?
0: Yeah, it was December 2014.
1: 14. then she lost it to Ioannia Jacek in March of 2015. She would shatter the record. That would be a fun story if it happened. I don't know, though, man. Rose has been
0: pretty good the last yeah. the last handful of times out. Which is why it surprised me to look at the betting odds for this one and see that it's a little closer than I thought. You know, a lot of people have Rose Namajunas right around a two to one favorite. Uh, some places a little under a two to one favorite. Carlos Barza at uh, plus one sixty five, uh, according to DraftKings. There, so I, I don't think you can exactly count Carlos Barza out. I think it makes it. Tempting for people because Rose Namajunas is such a charismatic figure. They like her so much. As a fighter, she's really developed into a well-rounded and like really excellent all-around fighter. And Carlos Barzo, you know, is going to show up, even at a title fight, walk in there, stand in her corner, looking like she's in the waiting room at the dentist. Just stone-faced, showing no emotion, no interest. Just kind of a whatever, let me know when it's time to go do this. But then when it gets started, like, she knows what her game is, and she's been pretty good at it. Yeah. Uh, it is, I guess, what I think or what I wonder about making the difference this time is it just seems like, athletically, Rose Namajunas just seems like she's ahead of her, and that her experience now, especially in big fights, has caught up to that, and that she's not quite as easily awed by the moment as she was back when they met at the Ultimate Fighter finale. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I actually thought the odds would be would be longer than yeah. that on Carlos Sparza. That's not there's not quite as much disparity in those odds as I thought that there might be. And like and hey, let me just say for the record, it was cool as hell when Carlos Sparza used to walk out to old school Metallica. That <laughs> yeah, that was actually course. super yeah. rad. I think she walked out to battery once before, uh, which was awesome. I don't think she does that anymore, but but it was it was cool when she did it. The road to victory for Carla Esparza here seems somewhat arduous to me. Like, isn't the way that she wins this to use her wrestling kind of GSP this thing? If she can take uh Rose down, do the top control thing maybe not take too many chances, basically have a positional fight more than anything else, land some ground and pound. If the opportunity presents itself for a submission that she could go for without giving up position to do it. But I think like, honestly, if, if I'm one of her coaches, I'm probably preaching a pretty conservative game plan for this thing. If we actually want to go home with the championship belt. And again, I think that's just a long damn time to be in the cage with Rose Namajunas, who has been good on the feet. She's got great submission skills. She's going to be out there shouting about how she's the best. Yeah. Uh, So we know that. It just seems like Carla Esparza will have to pull off a long and dangerous game plan if she is going to win this fight. I see that... uh, what is it? Six of her last seven fights have all gone the distance. Her wins, I'm sorry. Six of her last seven wins have all gone the distance, including those split decisions over Michelle Watterson and Marina Rodriguez. She did uh, score the TKO her last time out, but uh, I don't know, man, It just seems like you are going to have to play the long game in this fight. If you're Carlos Barza and you want to beat Rose Namajunas, and that seems like an awfully hard thing to do.
0: Yeah. But also, you know how we were talking the other day about the the live odds that they do and how those live odds can swing back and forth uh, pretty dramatically yeah. during the fight. If Carlos Barza can go out there and get a takedown in round one, take a look at the change in those live odds because I think that would be a, a huge indicator and a confidence builder for her if she can go out there in the first round and get Rose Namajunas down and not get you know submitted right away when she gets um, down. Because let's not forget, Rose Nami Yunus knows her way around a submission as well. Uh, but if she can get out there, get her wrestling working, and take Rose Nami Yunus down, then I think then people start to go, okay, wait a minute, maybe we have ourselves a fight here.
1: Yeah. Well, and it has been since 2017 – since the last time Rose Namajunas fought someone besides Joanna Yajicek, uh Jessica Andrade, and Zhang Wai Li. So it will be refreshing to see her out there uh, against a person that she has not fought, at least for several years, a relatively yeah. fresh opponent in Carla Esparza. Uh, but she has been very good over that uh, period of time. The, you know, the, if there is anything about Rose Namajunas that gives us pause, and I don't even know how... Uh, germane to the conversation this stuff is at this point but she's you know at just 29 years of age still so far because she got into the UFC so young but she has made noise about not wanting to do this forever and she seems like uh the kind of person who has other interests wants to go do other things may have other opportunities as as her life unfolds and so there's always a little bit of a question of where her mind is at where her dedication is and and how she has approached this now that said in all of those, most recent fights that we just talked about, she has looked spectacular and there has been no question about how dedicated to this life she is. Uh, But are you still anticipating that at some point before too very long here, uh, that the world of MMA has to say goodbye to Rose Namajunas because she's going to go do other stuff?
0: Well, I've heard this before and I'm not saying that she, she doesn't mean it or she's just talking, but I remember sitting there when Benson Henderson was UFC lightweight champion and he was talking about how he had a firm exit date. And then I watched as he blew right past that firm exit date. Yeah. So it's one thing to talk about a having a, a, a future exit in mind. It's another thing to actually do it when that time comes. That That's one thing I think we've learned.
1: No, I agree. Uh, she just seems like a slightly different person to me than yeah. some of the, some of these yeah. other people. And she is actually out here doing other stuff. Uh You know, not just talking about it or not just daydreaming about opening her own gym or whatever. She's actually doing other non-MMA related stuff. So I don't know how long she'll be around, but I wouldn't anticipate any kind of uh, breakdown or uh, lack of preparation from Rose Namajunas. It seems like they've had all of that stuff figured out for these last uh, run of fights that she's on here. So I think she'll be game and prepared and ready to go against Carlos Barza. We will see how it plays out in the co-main event of UFC 274. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Friends, let me tell you about a product that I use literally every day. I started taking AG-1 from Athletic Grains because it was a quick and easy way to get all the vitamins my body needs in order to be awesome all day long. With just one scoop of AG-1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. It supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, basically all of the things. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. It's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself. Athletic greens has over 7,000 five star reviews. And if that's not good enough for you, it's also a climate certified neutral company right now. It's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it to make it easy. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you got to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash CME. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash CME to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Ben, a lot of people have Michael Chandler versus Tony Ferguson circled on their calendars this lightweight fight at UFC 274, and not necessarily in a good way. I think a lot of people might be concerned about uh El Kakui Tony Ferguson at this point. Obviously, both he and Michael Chandler need to get a win to stay relevant in the 155 pound division here. Are you more excited for this fight or are you more kind of scared?
0: Uh can it be both? You're because scared, you got a little nervous feeling. Scared sided. You're yeah. scared sided, okay. Well, because Matchup-wise, at least if this one were taking place even two, three years sooner, I'd be really excited about it. It seems like a fun matchup, at least if you were getting a reasonably close to his prime, Tony Ferguson, against Michael Chandler. That seems like a fun fucking fight. And yet, the Tony Ferguson that we have seen recently and by recently, I mean in these last three fights, stretching back to his uh, the fight right at the beginning of the pandemic against Justin Gaethje, where he took a hellacious beating. It has seemed like this is getting potentially increasingly worrisome. And not necessarily just because he is not winning these fights. Justin Gaethje won. He was as tough as I've ever seen anybody in an MMA fight. Just the, the punishment he was taken The number of extremely hard, clean blows that he just kind of shrugged off before it was finally stopped in the final round, it was incredible to watch. And then he goes out there against Charles Oliveira, and he gets out grappled, essentially, but not necessarily super badly hurt. And then it seems like we're trying to give him a chance to rebound a little bit against Benil Dariush, uh, and he loses that one too. And then when you put him in the fight against Michael Chandler after that, it seems like the UFC had decided, OK, Tony Ferguson has crested the hill and is on his way down now, but still has a little bit of name value. And Michael Chandler is the kind of guy who can go out there and really thump on you, especially like, you know, this version of Michael Chandler that we've seen. He has that willingness to go out there, put on those kind of exciting fights, but in a way that could end up with Tony Ferguson, Tony Ferguson taking a pretty bad beat down. And we know he's still tough as hell, so it seems like it could go a little while. I guess that's my fears because round one I could see going, Holy shit, this is a, a great crazy fight. But by round like two and a half to three, I could see us going, Uh-oh, I'm not having fun anymore. Yeah. But that's what worries me, is the potential for that.
1: Yeah. If nothing else, it's a piece of pragmatic matchmaking here uh for the UFC. You got two guys, Virgin into their mid to late thirties that we are obviously all hemming and hawing about Tony Ferguson, because we know he's 38. And like you said, after a lengthy string of victories and title contention in the interim championship and, you know, endless talk of how he was going to fight Habib and that fight never came off. He's now dropped three in a row. We shouldn't, exempt Michael Chandler from all of that discussion, though. He is 36 years old at this point and comes in on the heels of back to back losses himself. We talk at length on this show about the 155 pound division, how competitive it is. And if either of these two guys want to get on the bus uh, that that is headed, you know, in and around title contention, not get left standing at the curb reading the exhaust, you got to win this one. And so yeah. uh, if you take two guys who, who seem to need it the most and match them up against each other, I guess in some ways you got to hand it to UFC matchmakers for being able to do that. Part of it seems a little bit mean-spirited in what we're <laughs> doing here, but uh, I guess check in with me on Sunday morning, and then we'll know a lot more about how we're, we're feeling about both of these guys.
0: Well, I mean, it is a little bit of a mean-spirited sport just when you think about what it is so uh, that it's true. But we've talked about this before, how sometimes you get to this point in the UFC where you're a name, you have worked your way up to that point. And then when you start to fall off a little bit from that peak, you're still a name. And the UFC is thinking about, well, Hey, we're this guy got up to a point where he's making a little more than some of the other people. He has this value. We could put him on a card it gets it more attention, but, when you're a name, you don't get tune-up fights. You don't get fights to try, try to help you get back on the the winning side. What you get is fights to extract every last value out of you while you're still there. And that kind of seems like what we're doing here.
1: Yeah, you don't get tune-up fights unless the UFC wants to give you one. Uh, and they don't seem to want to give Tony Ferguson one in this instance. He is going off at uh, plus 310 a three to one underdog against Michael Chandler, who is minus four ten headed into this fight. Uh, this, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough to see or it's tough to, uh, to anticipate that Tony Ferguson will put it all back together in this fight and have the answers for what Michael Chandler brings to the table. But I suppose crazier things have happened. It's still one, uh, that I suppose I will approach with some trepidation. Uh, just, just, I'm a little bit concerned about Tony Ferguson and how this might go, but uh, it's on the card. It's an interesting attraction. It's one that I think uh, we will all be watching with some excitement and and anticipation. Would you say it was scared excitement?
0: Yeah, a little bit of scared excitement. Okay. Uh, does it also seem to you like what we're doing here is putting this one on the card just in case something happens to one half of the main event?
1: I suppose. Yeah, a little bit of a uh, little bit of insurance. Just yeah. in case, although, uh, you know, I, I don't know that uh, we should anticipate Charles Oliveira and or Dustin having any problems. Those guys yeah. generally pretty professional about all that stuff. You also have Donald Cerrone and Joe Lausanne on this card, just in case uh, there's a taxi accident that several guys are taken out all at once. So we do have some lightweight fights backing this thing up. Uh, man, I guess in some ways there would be some like weird cosmic justice if... Somehow, some way, Tony Ferguson were able to get himself into a title shot after having so many uh, opportunities yanked out from under him. If he were to somehow, uh, you know, slip on a banana peel and find himself standing across the cage from Charles Oliveira, that, that there would be some cosmic justice in that.
0: I mean, honestly, when I look at the whole thing, it's a it's a decent main card here because, like, Oliveira versus Gaethje seems like how how is that not going to be fun? Some kind of way, right. you know, it, I always enjoy seeing Rosenama on fight and she gets to settle a score here with Carla Sparza, even if it's not the most high octane opponent they could dream up. This Michael Chandler, Tony Ferguson one, I mean, scared sighted is one of the known appeals in the fight game. So it's not as if like that's yeah i've been through too many of these where it's not like i'm gonna not watch just because i think that i might be witnessing man's inhumanity to man uh you got to make your peace with that in fight sports and you got shogun hua and and osp again Year of our lord 2022 chad uh but then you know donald sorney versus joe Lozon just for some some throwback fun there too like it's it's a pretty decent offering all things considered are uh, Shogun and OSP
1: doing it again after they met up down there in Uberlandia? Remember that? Uh,
0: that's not a real place. Nope. Nothing real could happen there. Anything that happens there, it's like fucking happening in Wonderland, Chad. It's not real. Come on.
1: I guess that's true. Well, Ben, you don't head down to the Footprint Center in Phoenix, Arizona without an absolute banger. You just don't go down there to the granddaddy of them all unless you're bringing your best and brightest. So we got all we got that look to, to look forward to uh, this weekend ufc 274 all right let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week uh ben i guess this week i'm just saying have we reached the everybody gets to do their stuff portion of the colby covington jorge masvidal
0: criminal complaint okay i see we had the same just saying stuff here okay this week. i did
1: not know that but uh because it seems like, you know, we we did all this stuff with the assault outside the poppy stake and it seemed like a big deal. And Colby Covington was going to press charges or protecting his identity using the shield laws down there in Florida. We got to call him CC the whole time uh, so that nobody knows that it's Colby Covington <laughs> that got attacked by Jorge Masvidal. He chipped his tooth. He, he got his Rolex. It seems like in the last week or so. We've advanced beyond the this is a serious legal matter phase, And now we are in the everybody's just doing their stuff. Are you motherfuckers trying to work a rematch out of this fucking assault charge? Because now we got people talking about, oh, it was a Folex. Yeah, it's a Frankenstein Rolex. We got Colby Covenant saying he suffered a brain injury. We got uh, Jorge Masvidal's attorney out here. Talking about how they need access to Colby Covington's medical records, so a medical examination may also be required to address if CC is competent to proceed in this matter, or if he is rendered incompetent yeah. due to the nature of his "quote unquote" brain injury. Come on, man! I'm we just want him
0: tested t- for me- for for mental competence.
1: It seems like we're. It seems like we have worked our way into a shoot, and now. We're kind of kayfabing it again a little bit here, like well we had an assault, but now we're just kind of we're using it to try to get another fight together or something here. I'm just saying this seems like if I was the if I was a a judge in Florida, I might consider throwing this thing right out.
0: Just well, saying. Well, my just saying has to do mostly with Jorge Masvidal's lawyer, Bradford Cohen, uh, Which, again, who
1: is not a real attorney. Bradford Cohen. That sounds like that sounds like a guy on L.A. Law. Or something. I
0: mean, it sounds like the most lawyerous motherfucker I can imagine, Bradford. I mean, you tell me like, oh, don't worry, we're sending the wolf in. We're sending Bradford Cohen. I go, oh hell yeah, Bradford. Oh I mean, shit, man. There's
1: That's even like, money, even money chance that Bradford Cohen's parents are also attorneys.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Fucking Bradford. Uh, but he's quoted. I'm reading the bloody elbow story on this and these quotes from Masvidal's lawyer. Here he writes, interestingly, the images do not demonstrate an injury aside from a small chip in CC's fake tooth. He had to know a fake tooth. The evidence collected thus far clearly contradicts CC's allegations uh, and then goes on to say, oh, uh, he claims the defendant hit him from behind exclusive footage going to throw around exclusive footage like it's fucking tmz shows during the during the incident cc was facing the individual he identified as defendant in fact cc was looking at defendant head-on prior to taking the hit then appears to run from defendant in fear also referring to the folex chad that uh, this comes from Coindon. This nickname indicates that a watch is composed of aftermarket parts, including fake or knockoff Rolex parts and possibly real Rolex components, certainly negating the testimony that the watch is worth $95,000. To calculate repair costs and extent of damage to CC's Folex, the watch needs to be examined more closely to determine the true value of the watch. This is a guy you weren't going to slip in the luxury timepiece portion of this case Past him and let him not like fail to seize on this and run with it. He's gonna he's gonna grab that element and take it twice around the dance floor. Wait, I mean, We need to see the luxury timepiece in question. Let's get an expert in here to determine its true value. Uh and then is, of course Is that a,
1: a legal argument or a pro wrestling promo? Uh CEC ran from JM in fear. Mm-hmm. Come mm-hmm. on, man. What are we doing
0: here? Uh also. The the quote, a mental examination may also be required to address if C.C. is competent to proceed in yeah. this matter or if he is rendered incompetent due to the nature of his quote unquote brain injury. Yeah, putting brain injury in quotes, man. Uh-huh. Uh, so I guess this week, Chad, I'm just saying I don't know where Jorge Masvidal found this guy, but I think Jorge Masvidal has found the right attorney for him found an attorney who you know matches his energy meets him on his level and proceeds the way jorge masvidal would proceed if he were an attorney at law i'm just saying
1: sounds like his nickname is bradford the brain cohen if you catch him (laughs) adrift i mean i just hope
0: each other you know
1: i hope it all works out for cc and jm in this in this business in any case, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to listen. We will be over at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event, all week hanging out, partying, doing the damn thing. Check it out over there. We got a patronage tier for every budget, patreon.com slash co-main event. And, of course, next week, we're back to tell you all the stuff that happened at UFC 274 on the Big Gay Lock Stravaganza Co-Main Event Podcast Episode 500. As of right now, we are done, we are through, we are out.
0: tell you something if you and me ever our business relationship ever falls apart and you get a letter from bradford cohen on my behalf look the fuck out because it is going scorched earth on your ass
1: you don't know this but i already send a lot of emails behind your back that refer to your quote-unquote brain injury i always put that in quotes oh ben can't join us today because of his quote-unquote brain injury <laughs> so, yeah I've already, I've already taken care of a lot of this stuff I'm coming over there right now. I'm going to punch you in your throat, too. Oh, man. Be ready to pay for my luxury timepiece. My Frankenstein Rolex, motherfucker.
0: what the appraiser has to say about that.